Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. I love going to outside of my comfort zones. It's hard, but at the same time, I'm not going to know the answers or make that change unless I can be that leader and go to someone and say, you know what, I'm curious. Can you tell me why you think this way? Those inspiring words from a woman named Tiffany Whittier is a great way to start this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. Gabe will join us later. This show is a partnership of Q Ideas and Faith Radio, where with Gabe's help and his team, we try to help you think well and advance good. A few weeks ago on Q Ideas, Gabe Thompson talked about understanding seemingly unrelated issues in the light of our cultural climate. Well, we're going to do something like that today by looking at a couple of different problems of our day, poverty and racism. In dealing with both, there is a common ingredient that often is missing in our attempts to address them. And that ingredient is having a personal, active, loving part in addressing the issues. You heard Tiffany at the start of the show. She, as an African-American woman who is also a social worker, took an active, loving interest in a person she probably should have hated, but she didn't. Before we get to that, let's go back a few years to a previous Q conference where Gabe sat down with Michael Matheson Miller of Poverty Cure. Oftentimes when we think about dealing with uh, poverty, we think of throwing money at a large, impersonal, one-size-fits-all poverty program. Well, as we'll hear, the answer lies at a more personal level. I think what I love about this conversation is, Michael, the work that you've done, the studies, the travels, um, is really promoting an, a, a concept and an idea about how we should think about poverty. And, and as you think about it, and you think about, the, I mean, your whole initiative is called Poverty Cure. What's your philosophy on how we're going to get there? I mean, the first thing is, one, we have to say that you know, there's really a, there's not a single cure for poverty. And we also have to remember that, I'm, and, and I would like to say that if I, you know, if, if I had the answer to the cure for poverty, I know you would have given me 18 minutes and not nine. And, uh, but I think that there's no cure for poverty. We have to realize that, first of all, poverty will always exist because there will always be tragedy and there will always be human sin. Uh, we are fallen creatures. And so we have to avoid a type of utopianism that we think we can just solve poverty. Um, but if we ask, like, what is, I think we, I think what we're trying to do at Poverty Cure is kind of reframe the discussion. And so we tend to look at poor, at poverty, look at poor people and think, oh my goodness, this is terrible. I, I need to do something. And I think that's a very important reaction. We should have that, right? We need a heart for the poor. It's a non-negotiable of our Christian faith. But I don't think that's the right question. I think the right question is not what can I do or how can we alleviate poverty, but is how do people in the developing world create prosperity for their families and their communities. And then we can ask, well, you know, what can I do to help? Because unfortunately, a lot of the things that we do to help, though well-intended, actually end up crowding out 
the development of business, delaying development of business. Yeah. We've done over 150 interviews for this, and one thing you hear over and over again is, really, we need partnerships a lot more than we need aid and help. And yeah. I think there's a kind of idea like, you know, if we just got together, if Christians got together, and we just were super generous, and we just gave as much as we had to the developing world, we'd end poverty. How many people think that would happen? I can't see you, so I'm assuming that everybody's right. I don't know. It's right there. But um, no, it wouldn't. Because poverty is not a problem of not people not having enough stuff. Poverty is a problem that people are not don't have the conditions of justice that enables them to flourish as human beings. Yeah. And so I think, and so the, it's it's kind of humbling to us because we want to solve the problem. Right. But I think really the problem comes in allowing human beings to create prosperity for their families. So there has been a big discussion in the last few years about aid and whether it's helping anything or making things worse. And I know this is part of what you're right. describing. I mean, how do you see this interaction between charity and us responding to need and wanting to engage, as well as enterprise and right. the vision for people on their own creating prosperity? Because there seems there has to be a way that the two can marry. Right. I mean, first of all, sometimes aid is absolutely important, right? I mean, if you're in a dire situation, it's important. I think one of the problems is that we've used an emergency situation as the model for development. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to begin to yeah. rethink that. But the question of charity, what is charity? Right? Charity is Christian love. It's a theological virtue. It's caritas, agape. And so it is seeking the good of the other. Right? It's looking after the good of the other, both here in this world for human flourishing and keeping the eternal destiny in mind. Okay? It's, it goes back to, to Kim's talk earlier. I mean, we tend to, in the, in the sexual world, we can see how we can objectify people. Right? The Bible says, you will desire your husband and he will lord it over you. And there's this conflict that we tend to objectify others. We treat people as objects. Well, Obviously, in not such a, a, a severe situation, but analogously, I think sometimes it happens with our charity. People are not, poor people are not the objects of our sentiment or our compassion, but they should be subjects. And so the, re, the real difference between Christian charity and then humanitarianism, which is really a secular version of that, is that Christian charity takes into account the truth and the dignity of the human person created in the image of God as a subject with creative capacity, yeah. right? And, and also keeps in mind what Lewis, C.S. Lewis tells us, that you've never met a mere mortal, that everyone has a destiny beyond this earth. Mm. And so when we do that, I think then we're looking at the good of the other, and then we enter into a intersubjective relationship with the people we're trying to help. Yeah, that's great. So when you think about the church, especially the American church, you've seen, I'm sure, the church as it's engaging in developing worlds, but what are, what are some things... We need to learn about this and ways we can be thinking about how we can be supportive to creating an environment where flourishing can take place, maybe more than just sort of dropping in and bringing some money and some funds. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, we need to, again, like I said, pay attention to the creative capacity yeah. of other people and to recognize that sometimes our help actually delays the development of business, okay? And the goal is not for us to feel good about ourselves, right? Uh, but to help other people get out of poverty. And our goal really shouldn't be to last forever. It should be to move out of the way. Um, I also think the church does something very important, and that is really to preach and live out the gospel. And uh, the one thing the church does that no one else can do is to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ, the dignity of the human person created in the image of God. And I think sometimes we're, you know, especially, you said, in America, 
we're pushed around by lots of, you know, like by secularism, by egalitarianism, by different things, and it's difficult, right? We all know this. We're, we're pushed, and there's this pressure. And I think that it's important for us not to give in to the pressure and compromise on the gospel. Because when we, when we speak the truth in love, right, when we speak the truth in love, which is sometimes a challenge, right, because we want to speak the truth, you know, won't you just listen to me? But when we speak the truth in love, then we're allowing the word of God to transform hearts and souls. And I think this is ultimately the question. Then this gives us a perspective of how we can relate to yeah. others. And last thing I'll say is maybe sometimes people don't need us to give them something. They need us to partner and invest in them. Mm-hmm. So would you say your perspective on this is that free enterprise is a part of God's vision for human flourishing? It's like free enterprise and that whole way of thinking is part of how we, we're going to cure poverty, but that's also human flourishing. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, let, me, let, me, let me put it maybe differently. Um, f- human flourishing, right, is about allow- the person living the way God intended us to live, seeking after the good, the true, and the beautiful. We are given to ourselves as gifts, and our, our talos, our direction, our end, mm-hmm. is to give ourselves back as a gift to God and to give ourselves as others. And we do this in living according to his will, and so hu- human flourishing is about that and then living in eternal life with God. So what the economy has to do is it's providing these material aspects for us to then live out who we are. And what I would say, rather than saying free enterprise, I would say that Christianity brings some very important things to the table that come out of Scripture and the tradition, Catholic, Protestant, reformers, modern thinkers, and that's, I would say, four foundations. This is kind of pedantic, and I have 60 seconds, so I'm going to do it fast, but that's private property rights, allowing people to have families to have space to live out their freedom and responsibility. Freedom to start a business. You know, there's studies that take sometimes 289 days, we saw a study in the Poverty Care Project, for, for somebody to start a little business. So they're blocked, the legal system's are unfriendly to poor people. So real justice and private property rights, freedom to start a business, rule of law, being treated fairly, doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, no matter where you're from, a culture of trust and free exchange. And free exchange is important because because when governments and businesses highly regulate an economy, the poorest of the poor are locked out. They don't have those social contacts to navigate bureaucracies. And so free exchange plays an important role, but it's not the end. The end is human flourishing. Yeah, well, it's beautiful. Thank you for your work creating that. Thank you very much. And sharing it with us. Thanks. Thanks. All right. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lines. Gabe is joining us now. And Gabe, just as poverty is best dealt with in the context of personal, loving support and encouragement, there is a similar need when it comes to dealing with racism. It has to come out of relationship. The conversation we're about to hear comes from this past spring's Q Conference in Nashville, and truly, it is an amazing one. It's one of those rare stories and opportunities where we actually hear people who come from two completely different backgrounds, largely don't understand one another's worlds, and then those worlds collide, and you start to see how all of us have the opportunity to grow and learn if we're willing to see kind of beyond the surface 
of skin color, of class, of ethnicity, of perspective, of economics, and actually see the human being behind it. That story today is going to be one of Tiffany Whittier and Michael Kent. It was one of the great highlights of our Q2018 event that just took place in Nashville this spring, and it was one of those where people were in tears as they listened to the story play out. We interviewed the two of them, and I don't want to give the whole thing away. I want you to just hear kind of how it unfolds, but the setting and the context for this story is that Tiffany was a probation officer who worked in Arizona for over 12 years, and she got assigned to Michael, who is sitting here on stage with her now at Q, and Michael would have described himself as a neo-Nazi, a racist. He owned that. He was happy with who he was. And then Tiffany walks into his life. And so I want you to hear as Show Baraka interviews Tiffany and Michael, and we hear their story unfold. The first question I wanted to ask you, uh, Michael, is I don't have a whole lot of white supremacist friends, but uh, are those who claim to be, Betty. <laughs> how does how did you come into being a skinhead? Like, how did that happen for you? Well, it started when I was a young kid. I, our family was living in Colorado and we moved to Pennsylvania, which it was a predominantly black neighborhood. And we we're one of the only white families there. And we got picked on because we didn't act like them. We didn't talk like them. We we're just different. And then about six years old, we moved to another place, out of the projects in the Pennsylvania again. And a kid broke out of a group home, an African-American kid broke out of a group home, broke into our house and tried to rape my mother. No good. Something a six-year-old shouldn't see. And then at the age of 12, I finally got me a, a black friend, and we were friends, thick as thieves, good as, good as you can be. He invited me over to his house, introduced me to his mom, his mom to meet me, and the first thing his mother said is, I don't want that blue-white devil in my house. And that was the first encounter with racism I ever had. I never knew what it was before until that day. And so from that point, did you just make the decision that, I'm just, I just can't in, interact with, with black folks or? Well, that day I started searching out for people like me that got bullied by other races and weren't accepted there. So the way I was looking, if you ain't going to like me, I'm not going to like you guys. And from that day on, I started actively searching for white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, everybody that was against the African-American culture, because if you don't like me, I ain't going to like you. Got you. So, Tiffany, when, when you first got the, the, the case, what was your thoughts? Like, was it just like, oh, it's another case? Or did you have any kind of trepidation? Like, what was your experience like when you first came into encounter with Michael? When I first got his case, I reviewed it. Uh -huh. um, I saw his tattoos, the hate tattoos, but I didn't judge. I just knew I had to go out and work with this person, interact with him, and try to make him a better person from from the first time I met with him. Yeah. Did you? Well, the story is amazing. So you had all these tattoos. In the in the video, the ABC News, they show you getting those tattoos removed, which is very painful. 
Yes. What was the transition? Like, what, what made you decide, like, you know what? I am going to leave this life of hatred and racism and to pursue somewhat of a reconciliation and truth. Because for once in my life, I realized that people of color do believe in good. She seen good in me. She gave me a chance. She gave me a second chance. Benefit of the doubt when a lot of my own people didn't give me the benefit of the doubt and didn't believe me. She showed up at my doorstep and knowing what the odds were. She came here. She opened her heart. From that day on, our relationship started growing, and she's been an inspiration to me and helping me get rid of all this hate. It's easier, it's easier to love than to hate. Hating takes so much time and energy. Yeah. So what were your, what were your thoughts while you were watching this transition and this process happen? Well, it didn't happen immediately. Uh -huh. um, as the enforcer, <laughs> it didn't. Um, it's something that took place over time. Yeah. Um, as I worked with him, I had asked him, and he brought this to my attention not too long ago. Well, actually, after um, being his probation officer, I said to him jokingly, "Hey, take down the the hate flags. Yeah. Put up some smiley faces. You know, have a positive day. You'll start out your day positive." And over time, he took down the hate flags. Um, he just interacted with me, with other people in the community. And it was just, it was a blessing yeah. to see the change. So I'm sure these decisions didn't go over well, especially in the circles that you were moving in. What were your, like, what were some of the things that you faced or what were some of the, the fears that you may have had or, or maybe still experienced, you know, <clears throat> in this transition? Well, I moved out to Colorado, like I said, just to get my life together, start a new life, new beginning, get away with everything and be able to live my life for me. And then ABC aired this story. Since they aired this story, I can't go back to Arizona now for at least a long while and see my kids. So in order for me to see my children, they have to fly out to see me. It's seen them twice in, two, in a year, year and a half. So it, may, it was an ultimate sacrifice that I made to give up this hate. But in the long run, it's better in my children's lives because they're not able to see what I used to be. They're able to see me for who I am now. So similar to you, Tiffany, I'm sure everybody in the office probably thought, girl, you're doing way too much. Like, <laughs> What were some of the, the some of the, the the messaging that was coming towards you as you were kind of going out your way to to help Michael? I wouldn't say I was going out of my way. Gotcha. I'm being me, yeah. and I feel like I treat all my clients, my defendants, equally. Yeah. I learn to listen. Yeah. Have that conversation with them. Um, it's a two-way street. Let them know me, but at the same time, I need to get to know them. Um, see where they're coming from. Yeah. What are their concerns? What are the problems they're having? Get to know their family. Yeah. And have that communication. The communication is key. Yeah. But for me, I didn't have um, any feedback from my coworkers yeah. saying, what are you doing going out there? Because there's others yeah. that are out there, too, that have problems. Your job is just to make sure that he doesn't commit any more crimes. So you could have just did that. Like, hey, just check in on him. Make sure he's not doing drugs. Make sure you're not... But you actually cared about him as a person. Like, why? Why was that? Like, you cared about the, the dignity of him. And She was too stubborn. <laughs> I care about people. Yeah. 
That's just generally in my heart to care about people and want to see people succeed and become better people than when they first walked into my office. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So. Thank you. While you guys are busy changing the world, I don't know if you know, like there's a lot of division in society. What are some encouragements that you would personally give to people out there who are wrestling with or who are struggling with? How do I identify? How do I cross these cultural differences? How do I engage with people who are different from me? What would you say? For me, the number one thing I've learned through this whole experience and everything, racism and hatred is a cancer. It's spreading throughout this country and throughout the world. But together as one, coming together, we can be the cure for this cancer. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And I would say for me is asking questions, communication. For me, I love going to outside of my comfort zones. It's hard, but at the same time, I'm not going to know the answers or make that change unless I can be that leader and go to someone and say, you know what, I'm curious. Can you tell me why you think this way? Yeah. So, Michael, what are some things you're doing now like to, to spread this message? I know you were talking about some things you're passionate about and who you think should hear this message? Well, for the most part, I want to target a lot of the youth because it starts with our kids. Because, like, with me, I was a kid and very impressionable. I judged a whole race for one person's actions. And, you know, that's still going on still to this day. we got to change the minds of our youth and form them to be responsible young adults. But ultimately, it comes up to us. The people in this room and people everywhere, we need to help our youth. If we don't change it and we don't change their way of thinking, it's not going to change. So we need to help our youth. So this is the litmus, Tiffany. Is Michael invited to the family picnic? Is he? Is he? Is she was he, at my wedding. Oh, come on, turn up. She was absolutely. She was at, and trust you, me, she got dirty looks, but she was family. So you got to come to the family reunion and do the electric fly with Tiffany. That's, She's never invited me. <laughs> there we go. We're changing lives right here at Q Conference. Y'all give it up for Michael and Tiffany. God bless. God bless. Thank you, Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing this story. I know it could go on and on, and there is a much longer story even than we were able to hear at Q. But, man, it just stood out to me hearing this discussion and hearing him talk about Tiffany, how she saw the good in me. She gave me a second chance. She showed up at my doorstep and opened her heart. And it always seems like in these conversations, there's always somebody who takes that first risk, who says, I'm going to take a major risk. I don't know what the reaction will be. I don't know if they'll respond well, but I'm going to put myself out there. And in doing so, it sort of invites a new conversation. It invites a relationship. It invites people to actually come together and start to see one another differently than just the veils that we can sometimes put up in our lives. And so I hope this story is one of those that you want to share with your friends, invite them to come back and listen to this particular episode of the Q podcast that they can find on iTunes or wherever they listen to podcasts. And this story, along with so many others at Q, are meant to give us hope, are meant to give us a sense of what is possible when we start to bring people together instead of dividing people. And in our culture today, there's so much about what separates us, so much about what divides us. There's a lot of news stories. There's a lot of headlines. There's a lot of discussion and fodder that could keep us divided. But there's 
enough stories like this one of Michael and Tiffany that I hope it encourages you that there's more possible. There's a better way. The world's dying to hear and understand and see modeled what it can look like to get along, to accept people who are different than us, who have different viewpoints, who've come from different historical backgrounds, who have strong opinions that you actually disagree with. But could you possibly still be friends? Well, the answer is yes, absolutely. And so if you want to see this talk and watch in person the emotion, the conversation that was taking place, you can do that at qideas.org. But I will tell you, when I talked with Michael at the end of the event, it was amazing to hear him. He hadn't been in a lot of environments that felt kind of like church or like Christians kind of all hanging out. That's not the space that he usually is operating in or spends time in. And he was just overwhelmed and touched by the kindness, the love, the way people treated him, the way he felt embraced, the way he felt like he was hearing, even through the other talks that were happening at Q, just the way that God works and how he's constantly pursuing people and loves them enough to go to all kinds of extreme ends to reach them. And so for him, it was being reached through his probation officer, reaching out and extending love and kindness in a way he had never experienced. And for you and for your friends, it might be something else that God's using. But just be encouraged. God's at work. He's constantly redeeming relationships, bringing people together. But it takes some of us being willing to risk, have courage, be brave, step out, do the hard thing, do the thing that feels awkward maybe. But it might just be the thing that breaks through to another human being who needs it in that moment. Before we wrap up today's show, just a quick reminder that along with the annual Q Conference every spring, Q Ideas also in the fall hosts the annual Q Commons events in many different communities throughout the U.S. and the world all in one night on October 25th. It's a great time to get together to ask questions, to think well, and to advance good in your local context. It really is looking at ways of putting love in action at a more personal level in your city. Many communities already have a Q Commons event planned, but maybe if yours doesn't, you could play the lead in your city to make it happen. Again, just go to QCommons.com. All the information is there. Well, Gabe, time went fast. It's time to wrap up today's show. Hope you have a great week and looking forward to the conversation on the next podcast. Q Ideas comes your way every week in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.